It's my purpose today in preaching the Word to bring a message on prominent themes in the Pentateuch. You will know that we've been studying the first five books of the Bible for a time. We've been giving basically an overview of the contents of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. We've made the point that they all are intertwined. You read one book, but you know that it's linked to the other. This is true of all five books. And the five books of Moses are given the Lord's own imprimatur in the New Testament. You'll remember that when he was on the road to Emmaus with those two, he opened the Scriptures to them, and it says, Beginning at Moses. Beginning at Moses. He then expounded unto them in all the Scriptures the things concerning himself. So there is a key to how to study the Pentateuch. You must look for Christ in these books, because he's there. If he was able to bring to those disciples the things concerning himself out of the books of Moses, then surely we can do the same thing as we study those books. Now, let us just realize that there are many historical, theological, and typical themes to be found in the five books of Moses. And I would say that having taken somewhat of a telescopic view of the five books, a bird's eye view if you like, which is from afar, it's our purpose now to take a more microscopic view. That is to concentrate more fully on some of the actual details and the highlights of these five books. Now, for obvious reasons, I'm unable to undertake a chapter by chapter exegesis of the Pentateuch. That is to bring out of every single chapter the content that is there. Uh, if I did that, I would probably beat Joseph Carroll, the Puritan who preached in the book of Job for 13 years. Uh, we don't want to be uh, making the people of God wish that the five books of Moses had never been written because the pastor is spending too much time preaching on those alone. So we're not able to do a chapter by chapter exegesis. But what we will do is pick out some historical, theological and typical material from these 187 chapters. That's how many chapters there are in the Pentateuch. Now the best way for us as students of Scripture to grasp or understand the Pentateuch is to read it. To read it and to reread it. My pastor used to drum this into the congregation all the time. He used to say to us, the Bible opens to reading. It's not going to read itself. You must take your Bible down, you must open it, you must read it. And as you read it, and ask the Lord as the psalmist did, open thy mine eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law, the Lord will teach you from his word. It's a good thing to read your Bible. We must read our Bibles. The Bible opens to reading. I know that's an elementary point, but it's a vital one. I'm afraid there are people, I hope they're not among us today, who from one Lord's Day to the next never touch the Bible. They don't open the Bible, they don't read it. That's a great shame. I think I told you this story before, it bears repetition. A pastor had visited a family in his congregation and 
After about a year after that visit, the lady of that house called up the pastor and said, Pastor, when you were visiting with us, I used special dishes and special cutlery. And I'm afraid I'm actually missing one of our dessert spoons. Would you know where it is? I said, yes, dear. It's inside your Bible. Mm. It's inside your Bible. I hope you haven't been guilty of that, not touching your Bible for a year. Read your Bible. Now, as you read through the Scriptures, you're going to find many things that are mentioned for the first time. And for obvious reasons, the first mention of a lot of things, people, places, events, and doctrines are going to be discovered at the beginning of the Bible, in the Pentateuch. But especially is this true of the book of Genesis. Genesis has rightly been called the book of beginnings. And you'll see the very first verse of the first chapter of Genesis would indicate this. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And that's just the beginning of a lot of beginnings in Genesis. Now the first 11 chapters of Genesis are an historical record of the development of the human race generally. Then the last 39 chapters, that's from chapter 12 to chapter 50, there is the record of the history of a family. One family, we often refer to them as the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Jacob's son, Joseph. Isn't it interesting that when the Lord Jesus Christ was talking about heaven, he said, many shall come from the east and the west, speaking of the Gentile nations, and shall sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. I like that. That's a family. The grandfather, the son, and the grandson, all in glory. Will we know one another in heaven? Well, there's not going to be much point in the Lord Jesus saying, you're going to sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob if you don't know who they are. Oh, we're going to know one another in heaven. And by the way, the great Bishop J.C. Ryle has a wonderful little sermon on that. Shall we know one another in heaven? Tremendous comfort for those whose loved ones are in glory. But there is here the record in Genesis, first 11 chapters, of the development of the human race. It all begins in the first two chapters with the record of creation. Now let's think about that for a time. The work of creation. Now as you read Genesis chapters 1 and 2, you'll see that chapter 2 is really somewhat repetitive. It's somewhat of an expansion of chapter 1. It's taking a a closer look at the creation of our first parents, Adam and Eve. Now before we go any further, let me just say this. It's important to state that God made all things. He created everything out of nothing. It's what we call in the Latin term ex nihilo. Out of nothing. He created all things in six literal 24-hour days. Let me repeat that. He made everything, he created everything out of nothing in six literal 
24-hour days. Now we'll come back to that in a little bit, but just suffice to say, the Sabbath commandment, which harks back to creation, is going to be meaningless if it wasn't a 24-hour day. You can't base a day of worship on an indeterminate length of a period of time. It was a literal day. And it is very important to establish that fact at the very beginning. I make no apology for being a six-day, literal, six-day creationist. But let's look at Exodus chapter 20 for a moment. The work of creation is obviously referenced, first of all, in Genesis, in the first couple of chapters. But when you go to Exodus chapter 20, and you have the words that the Lord gave to Moses, the Decalogue, the Ten Words, the Ten Commandments, you will notice the fourth commandment. Exodus chapter 20, and verse number 8, down to verse 11. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. I think the Lord tells us to remember it because it's so easy to forget it. So easy to forget that it's the Lord's day. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. The word holy means to keep it apart. To fence it off as by boundaries. It's a different day. It's set apart from all other days. And he explains that. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God in it. Thou shalt not do any work, thou nor thy son, nor thy daughter, thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. Why? Verse 11. For, because, in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that in them is, and rested or ceased the seventh day, wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. He made it holy. He set it apart. Now just go back in your Bible to the beginning again. Genesis chapter 1. And read from verse 31 of chapter 1 and the first three verses of the second chapter which we read a few minutes ago in our Bible reading. And God saw everything that He had made and behold it was very good and the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Thus the heavens And the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God ended his work which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because that in it he had rested from all his work which God created and made. I'm not going to be able to give you a full explanation today, of six-day creation. But it is vital that we hold to this and that we reject any ideas that have a tendency to undermine six-day creation. There's an author called Oswald T. Alice. He has a very good appendix to his book which is entitled God Spake by Moses. And that appendix is on what is called the interval theory. You may have heard of it as the gap theory. 
The gap theory is held by many evangelicals. They believe the gospel, no doubt. It's a notion, however, that while it's been accepted by many good men, in my view, it serves to undermine the integrity of Scripture. Now, the idea that's posited by this theory is that there is a gap or an interval of time that can be inserted in Genesis chapter 1 between the beginning of verse 2 and the remainder of verse 2 and verse 3. Now look at this. Verse 2, the first line is, And the earth was without form and void. And there are people who have extrapolated from that that this allows a period of time, perhaps millions or even billions of years, to be inserted in there until it then says, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and goes on, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. So the idea is that there was all this darkness that could have continued for any length of time that you want to choose. And then, at a certain point, God began to create things. A good treatment of the whole matter of creation, by the way, is to be found in a commentary on Genesis by Henry Morris, the late Henry Morris, is called the Genesis Record. It's one of the most brilliant expositions of this matter that I have ever read. And I would just commend it to you. Suffice it to say, I do not believe that the Hebrew word translated day, yom, you would say y-o-m in English, I do not believe that it has the meaning of age or unlimited period of time. It does not mean that. Nor do I accept the nonsense of Steven Spielberg and his Jurassic Park fiction, which presents the notion that dinosaurs were roaming the earth 65 million years before humans were present. This is not true. In fact, there are places where dinosaur footprints apparently have been found along with human footprints. But acceptance of the gap theory would allow for this evolutionary notion and other notions like it, such as theistic evolution and the kind of nonsense that's taught by Timothy Keller and others. The words of the Lord Jesus Christ to me are conclusive on this matter. How should we interpret Genesis and especially the creation of man? Look with me at Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. And the Pharisees were asking the Lord Jesus a particular question which had to do with the matter of divorce. And the Lord Jesus gave this answer. And in the preamble to that answer... You have the answer to this question. When was it that man was created? Matthew 19.4 And he answered and said unto them, Have ye not read... And that would have been... That would have been like a sword entering into their hearts. Because these men prided themselves on their knowledge of the Old Testament. They prided themselves on their knowledge of the law of God. And here's a man saying to them, have you not read? Did you not read this? That he which made them 
at the beginning. Did you notice that? When did God make them? At the beginning. He made them male and female. When did God create Adam and Eve? At the beginning. Just like Genesis chapter 1 tells us he did. On the sixth day. It's very clear. God created man in his own image. Genesis 1.27 In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. And when was that? It says in verse 31, And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. God made a man and a woman, Adam and Eve, at the beginning of creation, not after millions of years had elapsed. Now creation is spoken of in many places in the scriptures. There are those who try to tell you that Adam and Eve are mythical characters, they're they're just uh, representative names. But I want to tell you that Adam and Eve were real persons in history. Look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 20. And Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. The word Eve in the Hebrew literally means living. Adam and Eve. Now go to chapter 4 verse 1. And Adam knew Eve his wife, referring to in a carnal sense. And she conceived and bare Cain and said, I've gotten a man from the Lord. Now you go to Romans chapter 5 in the New Testament. And note how the Apostle Paul refers to Adam. Romans 5 from verse 12. Wherefore, as by one man, sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. And you notice the references to Adam and to one man in the remaining verses. By the way, Moses is also mentioned in that context in verse 14. Adam to Moses. Adam was a real person. Go further to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And again, it's speaking of the fall of man into sin. We'll come to that in due course. It says in verse 22 of 1 Corinthians 15, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Go to verse 45. And so it is written, The first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last Adam, that's Christ, was made a quickening spirit. And in verse 47, Adam is referred to as the first man who is of the earth, Christ, the second man who is the Lord from heaven. Adam was a real person. What about Eve? Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians 11. Verse 3. But I fear lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Where did he get that from? He got that from Genesis chapter 3. Where Satan comes in the form of a serpent to Eve. And he beguiles her, he tempts her, he deceives her. 
And then you go to 1 Timothy chapter 2. And once again, Paul speaks of this. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13. For Adam was first formed, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. There are other scriptures that I could refer to. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. In the opening part, it's speaking here about the relative positions of men and women. Head coverings, that sort of teaching right here. And what is it based on? Well, it says here in verse 9 that the man, neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. There's Adam and Eve again. Creation. The, the Bible is clear on these matters. People like to cherry pick the scripture. The problem is that when you do that, you make so many other scriptures to be meaningless. People say, well, I don't believe that there was such a person as Jonah and I don't think there was any whale that swallowed him. Okay, then we go to the New Testament. We see that the Lord Jesus mentioned that. Is the Lord Jesus a liar? See, you can't say, well, I just believe the words of Jesus. If you believe the words of Jesus, then you'll believe in creation. And you'll believe in our first parents. You'll believe in Jonah and the whale. You'll believe in Noah and the ark. Because he taught about that as well. People think they're being so clever in cherry-picking the Scripture. The problem is that when you pit one Scripture against another, you make a nonsense of the Scriptures. The Bible is a united whole. Turn with me to Luke chapter 3. The Gospel of Luke chapter 3. What does it say in verse 38? The last verse of that chapter. It speaks of one which was the son of Enosh, which was the son of Seth, which was the son of Adam. There was a real person called Adam. Go to the small epistle of Jude, one chapter just before the book of Revelation. And in verse 14, it records, And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam. Oh yes, there was a man called Adam. He was the creation of God. God created man in his own image. And when we think about creation, there are two very important Things that were instituted at creation. Things that are under attack in our world ever since, and particularly in the day in which we live. Those two institutions of God are the Sabbath and marriage. Look carefully at the scripture. Both of these fundamental institutions were established by God and are and were the foundation for family and national life and the proper worship of God. Let's look at the first of those. The Sabbath. What the Hebrews call Shabbat. Genesis chapter 1 verse 31. God saw everything that he had made. Behold, it was very good. The evening and the morning were the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. We've dealt with that. And on the seventh day, 
Now, remember this. The seventh day is the day after the six days of work. Why is that significant? We'll come back to that in a moment. But it's called the seventh day. Not because it's Saturday. It's called the seventh day because it's the day following the six days of lawful work. On the seventh day, God created his work which he had made. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. That's why it says in Genesis, or sorry, in Exodus 20, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. That word holy is connected with the word sanctified. God blessed the seventh day and he set it apart. He, he fenced it off. He marked it off by boundaries. Why? Because that in it, in that day, he had rested or ceased from all his work which God created and made. God didn't cease on that day because he was tired. When the Bible says that God rested, it doesn't mean that God said, "Ah, now all that work is done, I'm going to rest. That's not what it means. The word rest has to do with ceasing. Just stopping. The work was finished, you see. Now go back again to Genesis 20. And here's the significance of what I said a moment ago about the day following the six days of work. Exodus 20, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy? And then it follows here. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work. Now, let's remember what Jesus said about this. There were people that came to him and said, you shouldn't be healing people on the Sabbath, because it's the Sabbath. Somebody's sick, need to be healed, tell them to come back the day following the Sabbath. Well, we know that if you do that, people will die. If I'm having a heart attack, somebody says, you can't go to the hospital on the Lord's Day, wait till Monday. And Monday, you'll already be in heaven if you're saved. There are things that we call works of necessity and mercy. And the Lord Jesus covered that when he said, If any of you has an animal, a beast, and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath day, you lift it out. Because that's a work of mercy. If someone needs to be healed, I will heal that person on the Sabbath day. Because that's a work of mercy and a work of necessity. There was a very clever employer once who was a godless man, but he had a godly man working for him. And he said to that godly man, I want you to work for me on Sundays. Previously he had not. And the Christian worker said, well, I don't want to work on Sundays because that's not necessary work. It's not, you're not a police officer, you're not a doctor, you're not a surgeon, you're not in some of the emergency services like the fire department. Oh, he said, but doesn't the Bible say that if your animal falls into a pit on the Sabbath, you can lift it out? And the very clever, sharp Christian said, Yes, sir, it does say that. But here's the thing. If my animal fell into the pit every Sabbath, I'd do one of two things. I'd either fill up the hole or sell the animal. Because this term, necessity and mercy, is very elastic, you know. People like to stretch that out. To apply to things that it doesn't apply to. But to get back to this, the six days... It's very clear 
that these are six days of labor, six days of work. And then in verse 11 of of Exodus 20, it tells us, because for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that in them is, and rested, or he ceased the seventh day, wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Now you'll have Mr. Seventh-day Adventist and some other so-called Messianic Christians who will come to you and say, oh, you should be worshipping on Saturday, because that's the Sabbath. And the only people that worship on Sunday are those who are following the Pope. Because one time he made this decree that people were to worship on Sunday and the first day of the week instead of Saturday. Now, first of all, that's a lie. That's not true. Because the Apostle Paul, in Acts chapter 20 and verse 7, met with the people of God and preached to them until midnight on the first day of the week. When he told people to bring together their tithes and offerings, that there would be no gatherings when he came, he said it was to be done, 1 Corinthians 16, on the first day of the week. John, in Revelation 1 verse 10, speaks of being in the Spirit on the Lord's day. What is the Lord's day? It's the day that the Lord hath made by his resurrection. When did he rise? He rose early in the morning on the first day of the week. People say, well, that means there is no Sabbath. No, it doesn't mean that. Because the commandment still applies. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. It doesn't say remember Saturday. It says remember the Sabbath. Six days of labor and then the day of worship. The Sabbath is the day following the six days of work. Before Christ was raised from the dead, that was indeed Saturday. It was the seventh day of the week. But you will see in the commandment that it does not say, as Seventh-day Adventists will wrongly teach, Exodus 20 verse 10, but the seventh day of the week is the Sabbath. It doesn't say that. If it said the seventh day of the week is the Sabbath, you and I would be in trouble meeting on Sunday. That would be the wrong day. But it doesn't say that. It says the seventh day is the Sabbath. That's the day following the six days of work. Which in our case is the first day of the week. The Lord's Day. Which we observe, as the Westminster Divines rightly said, as a Christian Sabbath. Now notice carefully that when you look at the Sabbath commandment, it was instituted at creation. It's it's, uh, mentioned and rehearsed in Exodus 20, when the law was written down. But you will notice carefully that though this fourth commandment, and indeed the other nine commandments, were not yet written down until Exodus 20, when Moses was given the commandments on two tablets of stone, until the events described there, the commandments were not written down, but can I just tell you that they were in force? Oh yes, the commandments were in force before they were written down. Before they were codified by Moses. How do you know that? Well, why could God deal with Cain as a murderer if he didn't break the sixth commandment? Thou shalt do no murder. That's what it means. Thou shalt not kill. Cain killed his brother. He broke God's commandment. Even though it was not yet codified by Moses. The same is true of the other things that are mentioned in Scripture. You can go through them one by one. 
But especially is this to be noted in relation to the Sabbath commandment. Because when were the commandments written down? Exodus 20. When were the commands about going out and gathering the manna written down? Exodus 16. Look at it. Remember how the people were in the wilderness? They needed bread. The Lord gave them bread from heaven. It was called manna. Now what did they do? Well, they obeyed. They were supposed to obey what God said. Exodus 16 verse 4. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you. Can you imagine go outside and there's all this bread coming down from the sky? That's what happened. It all fell in the wilderness. God brought it to them every day. Here's what he said. And the people shall go out and gather a certain rate every day that I may prove them whether they will walk in my law or no. What do you mean? Walk in your law. I thought the law wasn't written down yet until Exodus 20. Well, it wasn't. But God's law was in force. God's law is like God himself. It's eternal. That's why I reject the notions of what is called dispensationalism. The idea that there are things that Moses wrote down in the commandments, but that no longer applies. There is no Sabbath today because there's a different dispensation. That's not scriptural. It's not scriptural. The commandment was here before Moses ever wrote it down. Before God ever wrote it down, actually, on tablets of stone. What were they to do? Exodus 16, verse 5. It shall come to pass that on the sixth day, notice it, they shall prepare that which they bring in, and it shall be twice as much as they gather daily. So in other words, they were not to go out on the seventh day to gather Because if they did, what would happen? Well, you read on later in the chapter. And the Lord tells us what happened. There were those who decided that they were just not going to bother keeping the Sabbath. Verse 22, it came to pass that on the sixth day they gathered twice as much bread, two omers for one man, and all the rulers of the congregation came and told Moses. And he said unto them, This is that which the Lord hath said, Now remember, this is before the commandments are written down. This is before Exodus 20. Tomorrow, verse 23, tomorrow is the rest of the Holy Sabbath unto the Lord. Bake that which you will bake today, and see that you will seethe, and that which remaineth over, lay up for you to be kept to the morning. And they laid it up till the morning, as Moses bade. And it did not stink. Neither was there any worm therein. And Moses said, Eat that today, for today is a Sabbath unto the Lord. Today ye shall not find it in the field. Isn't that amazing? Every day that bread rained down from heaven, but on that one day it never came. Because God himself kept the Sabbath. And here's what happened. Verse 27 of Exodus 16. And it came to pass that there went out some of the people on the seventh day for to gather. See, they just ignored Moses. They just ignored God's command. Not working out anyway. We're going to go and gather the stuff on God's Sabbath. We don't care about the Sabbath. Isn't that how people are today? Isn't that how the average person is today? And many included being professing Christians. What happened? 
There went out some of the people on the seventh day to gather, and they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, How long refuse ye to keep my commandments and my laws? See, for that the Lord hath given you the Sabbath, therefore he giveth you on the sixth day the bread of two days. Abide ye every man in his place. Let no man go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Yes, the Lord established the Sabbath. And then it was written down. It was codified on two tables of stone that were given to Moses. What does that signify? It signifies permanence. It wasn't written on paper. It was written on stone. And then you will note in the rest of the Old Testament, the weekly day of rest and worship being observed. Remembering that it was a theocracy. You better be glad today you don't live under that actual law that was in Israel for the civil law of Israel. Because Nehemiah did not treat those people very well who were guilty of breaking the Sabbath. And they're bringing burdens and stuff into the city on the Sabbath day. Doesn't it refer to them pulling their hair out? It'll have a job with me, right enough. But that's what happened. That's what happened. And in Isaiah chapter 58, verse 13, the Lord speaks of keeping the Sabbath. And this is great, great counsel for God's people even today. Isaiah 58, 13. If thou turn away thy foot from the Sabbath, from doing thy pleasure on my holy day. Isn't that what the average person is into today? You go past the stores and the malls, there's chock full of people. Never used to be the case, by the way, as I understand it in this part of the world. I'm not from here, but I've heard of the blue laws. Where did that come from? That came from a time when people observed God's law. And the sports events, when are they? When are all the finals? I don't care what sport you choose. When is the final? When I was a kid, the tennis at Wimbledon, the men's final was on a Saturday and the ladies' final was on a Friday. You know when it is now? The ladies' final is on Saturday, the men's final is on Sunday. Of course, that was before the advent of the Super Bowl. That's another abomination. Every year. There are some churches even that go along with that. And they say, well, we can't beat them. We'll join them. We'll put the big screen in the parking lot. And we'll try to witness to people at halftime that they need to be saved. I call it the entertainment syndrome. It has taken over the Sabbath day. When I was a young fella, I loved soccer. I still do. The last final of the World Cup in soccer was held on a Saturday in England when England won it in 1966. From 1970 on, every four years, it's on Sunday. Why is that? Is that an accident? Is that just like something that they just decided to do? If thou turn away thy foot from the Sabbath, from doing thy pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy of the Lord, honourable, and shalt honour him, not doing thine own ways, nor finding thine own pleasure, nor speaking thine own words, then shalt thou delight thyself in the Lord, and so on. 
A Sabbath well spent brings a week of content and strength for the joys of tomorrow, or the toils of tomorrow. But a Sabbath profaned, whate'er may be gained, is a certain forerunner of sorrow. While I'm reminiscing, when I was a youngster, I never saw in the rural community where I grew up in, I lived in the city, but most of Northern Ireland is rural. I never saw farmers take their machinery out on the Lord's Day. Didn't happen. Even though the harvest time was a time for getting stuff in before the rain came, never happened. What do we find now? That's one of the busiest days. Sad. And a lot of it lies at the door of churches. And it lies at the door of preachers. Telling people that the Lord's Day is not the Lord's Day. You can do what you want on a Sunday. And is it any wonder that people decide, you know what, I can do what I want on a Sunday, so I don't think I'll bother with church. If I've got something else to do, that's what I'll do. I'm not talking about works of necessity and mercy. I'm talking about those who can keep the Sabbath but don't. Now, it has been rightly observed that the Old Testament Sabbath commemorated the original creation. That's what it says there in Exodus 20. For in six days the Lord created the heaven and the earth. It's speaking about creation. The Sabbath was to commemorate the original creation. Let me suggest that the Lord's Day or the New Testament Sabbath is to commemorate every week the new creation. What's the new creation? 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse number 6. It's beautiful how the Apostle speaks about the original creation, but he applies it to the gospel in this way. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 3. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world, small g, that's Satan, hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious image, that glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. Now look at verse 6. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness. What's that? Isn't that Genesis chapter 1? Isn't that in those words that we read this morning in verse 3? And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined in our hearts. To give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What that tells me is that in the gospel there is that which is a direct correlation to creation. At creation God spoke. He spoke light into the darkness. This is what happens when people are saved. People are in darkness spiritually and God speaks light into that darkness. And all of a sudden they can see it. I can see it. I understand now what this means. Without being irreverent, it's as though a light has come on. Isn't that what John Newton referred to when he said, I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind. Was blind, but now I see. That's what happened when the Lord Jesus literally healed the blind. People who had never been able to see anything, he He gave them their sight and immediately they could see everything clearly. That's what happens 
when you get saved. That's what happens when the Lord, by His Spirit, works in your heart. It's a new creation. And we remember what God has done in the new creation as we worship Him on the Lord's day. That is particularly in view. I said there were two things, but my time is gone as regards being able to deal with the second one of these. It is the institution of marriage. But just suffice to say that of these two institutions that have been assailed and are assailed much in our day, not only is it the case with the Sabbath, it's the case with marriage. What did God say? Genesis 1.27 So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. Now just think about that. God never created transgenderism. It is scientifically impossible to change genders. And we have people today teaching others and believing and trying to claim that men can be women and women can be men and a man can be born in the wrong body and a woman born in the wrong body and all of that nonsense. Male and female created he them. And as you go into chapter 2, you will see that God brought a woman unto Adam. He didn't bring another man to Adam. I know it was said in a jocular way, but it's true. God did not create Adam and Steve. He created Adam and Eve. What for? The Bible says in Genesis chapter 2, verse 22, The rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, Isha, because she was taken out of man, Ish. Therefore shall a man, because of this, shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife. And they shall be one flesh. And that, my friends, is the only one flesh relationship that is permitted in Scripture. Everything else that is an attack on that is an attack on God's order. God's creation. That's why it's such a serious thing. God established the Sabbath. It's everywhere attacked today. Most people get up on a Sunday morning, it's just like any other day. It's a holiday rather than a holy day. With marriage, same thing. Christian marriage, under assault. The one flesh relationship of a man and a woman, under assault. A fundamental institution established by God, the foundation for family and national life. And it is under attack from every quarter today. This is no accident. This is the devil's work. I'm glad that we serve a great creator who, as the hymn puts it, became our saviour. Down from his glory, 
our Lord and Savior came. And Jesus was his name. As the hymn says, the great creator became our Savior. And all God's fullness dwelleth in him. May we worship him, our Lord and our God. Amen.